Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you back. This is C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor, and I've been a real estate investor, and I've been a teacher of philosophy at the college level, and I've written books. But enough about me. Glenn, tell us about yourself. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a professor of European history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Great. And Tom? Tom Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist. I teach both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and I did teach recently at the uh, Fight, Laugh, Feast University. All right. Yes. So uh, that was exciting, and I teach other places, and I play guitar and other things, but uh, that's enough for now. (laughs) Good stuff, good stuff. Well, folks, we're glad that you're with us. Um, We really do appreciate your interest in our show. And today is uh, Tom's day. As uh, regular listeners know, each of us gets a day on rotation, and it is now Tom's turn. So, Tom, what are we talking about? Well, um, some of the themes today I think are going to just be an outgrowth of what we just talked about last week um, with Glenn's show. I think we're going to find these things complement very well. So anything we didn't get to explore then, we can uh, explore now, (laughs) and we'll feel free to. Um, But I'm going to do it under a different rubric. Um, One of the things I'm kind of picking up with as kind of a a set of contrasts that I think are very illuminating for for helping us analyze um, culture and the the nature of our times is is this uh, juxtaposition that's not original to me. Um, A lot of Catholic thinkers and Protestant thinkers like Francis Schaeffer really um, had their finger on this pulse. But it's this contrast between the way in which the gospel and Christianity um, um, impacted the world and cultures. Um, we talked a few weeks about the way in which Christianity um, both negated but also w- were able to take aspects of the, the, the non-Jewish world um, and reorient it towards its fullest meaning and significance in Christ and illuminate those aspects of it that, that helped um, illuminate the, the truth of God and wean off cultures from those aspects that didn't. I mean, Chris... Christianity's impact on culture helped do that. I mean, we've talked about it in the way in which um, medicine and hospitals are conceived, the way in which charity is conceived, the dignity of the human, even though fallen, respected, and made in the image of God, the way laws were conceived. And so the the real heart of this, I think, came out, um, you know, a couple decades ago, especially um, with... uh, John Paul's work um, on, you know, cultures of life, in particular around the time when abortion on demand um, was really taking hold in euthanasia and and things like it were really starting to become serious propositions within um, the West. So his, after fighting communism and its dehumanizing aspects, which are suddenly attractive again to the the dark souls, um, I had to turn and face the fact that the the other, the other option that was going to fill the vacuum when communism left was a West who had something seriously sick about it. Um, it had started to build a culture of death, not of life, not the one that Christianity had kind of had given it as a better alternative. Um, and so I was, I was kind of reading um, Benjamin Weicker's book again, um, The Architects of the Culture of Death, where he was kind of making a contrast between what Christianity brings to the world and brought to the world 
and then the undermining of it um, that we've started to see and the carving out of an alternative, all in the name of, in some ways, um, freeing humanity to pursue life. But the life that they're called to pursue is very grim, <laughs> um, very dark. Um, and so um, I guess that by way into it, he begins his book with uh, the, the earliest, one of the early Christian writings um, called The Teaching of the Twelve or the Didache, right? Um, it's one of the earliest non-New Testament documents that survived, as he puts it, and we find a stark choice given those who were going to be considered being Christians. Um, it was an initiation manual for converts telling what Christian holiness demanded. And so there are basically two ro roads that are put, one of life and one of death. But there's a great difference between these two ways. Um, significantly, we find the following prohibitions among the admonitions. You shall not kill. You shouldn't commit adultery. Don't corrupt the youth. And they're talking especially sexually. Um, you shall not commit fornication. You shall not steal. You shall not use magic. You shall not uh, use contraceptive and border fashions. Very big thing promoting life. You shall not slaughter a child in abortion, nor slay a begotten one. You shall not desire the goods of others. And there's this whole list that really marks the differences between Christianity and, in this case, the practices of Rome. Now, I remember visiting the catacombs for the first time, and one of the interesting things is the, the guy doing the tour, it turned out to be uh, Italian evangelical. Um, but one of the things he kept um, showing us as we were going underground, on the one hand, we see the first fruits of Christian art. I mean, this is some of the earliest Christian art that we have. Um, and uh, it, it was kind of emotional and touching because they were Eucharist paintings and the like. Um, and then he said, but you have to understand that this was all done in a culture of joy. Yes, Christians were living underground. Yes, they were marginalized and persecuted, but they were happy, a happy bunch. Not happy in the trivial sense, but in the joyous sense. That conquer, what did uh, Matthew Arnold's famous phrase, the conquering um, newborn joy that Christians have. Um, but then you also had the fact that you had little tombstones that were for all the aborted fe uh, fetuses and children that the Christians would go and give a proper Christian burial to, which marked a very stark contrast to throwing human life to the side of the road and it being trampled versus giving them something that recognized, I think, the fuller vision of life and those made in the image of God, which is the, the eternal life and the resurrection, the hope, hope for life again. And so you have such a, just a contrasting ethic start to already formulate in a world that was marked by itself, on the one hand, strength and vigor, but on the other, anything that didn't match that strength and vigor, that which was, I guess you'd say, marred by sin, death, and, and, and just the, 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 the products of that, um, was trampled on and just considered of no significance. Um, and this is something totally different for Christians. And I, and I think maybe just pausing at this place is we oftentimes have a hard time as Christians because we know that the, the, you know, the creation has fallen. We know it's depraved all the way down. But on the other hand, we know that that does not negate God's bringing about its redemption in Christ and, and the calling of of you know those to whom uh, God is calling to eternity 
to be partakers of the vindication of creation and life in the resurrection of Christ and beyond. And so the ethic that we have, just as God loves the good and the bad and evil, you know, love your enemies, for example. I mean, these ethics totally contrast the picking of winners and losers in terms of a culture. And so I, I think my, my question here is there was something that Christians could see by the, the world's power standards, the unborn are the weakest, and those that weren't wanted were ultimately rejected and just thrown by the roadside. And yet you have an ethic of a people and a culture developing that says, wait a minute, they haven't ceased to be significant in relationship to God's creation and redemption. And I think just throwing out there how that marks a different understanding than one that sort of just becomes indifferent to, to things as it's easy to happen, I think. Right, right. Mm-hmm. As we think about our time and um, what we're dealing with today in popular culture, we're at a point where there's been a sort of weird inversion. Yeah. I don't know if you're planning to go this direction, but... Um, there is a, when we think about, say, for example, critical race theory or intersectionality, say intersectionality, with intersectionality, you know, the more um, sort of marginal you are, the more moral authority you possess. So what, what we see at, at, the, at the moment is a kind of perversion of this original Christian vision. Yes. So, um, and in fact, uh, we have a kind of weird inversion as in another sense. If you're capable, if you're competent, if you're physically strong, you're almost, obviously there are still plenty of ways in which you enjoy the benefits of those things. But morally, yeah. you have to apologize for these things. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've witnessed this, but mm-hmm. you know, uh, an able-bodied person almost feels like he needs to apologize, or she needs to apologize for being able-bodied. Yeah, yeah. Particularly in the presence of someone who maybe is crippled, yeah. as though their able-bodiedness has somehow harmed the crippled person. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. It's just something I've sort of um, wrestled with a little bit because, you know, in the course of things, our adversary, the devil has a way very uh, cleverly of ruining anything good. Yeah. <laughs> and so what we have in Christianity is the introduction of intrinsic value, the dignity that uh, is, should be uh, recognized in any person because he's, he or she's made in the image of God, right? But now this has become like a, a weaponized thing Yeah. that's actually counterproductive in so many sort of commonsensical ways uh, you know do we really want to to sort of communicate that the to our our young people that if you really if you want status in our society the more problems you've got the more status you get I mean do we, are, do we really want people running our military or trying to build buildings who who are self-consciously or almost embarrassed by their abilities uh, I mean, yeah. what, what, what do we do yeah. with all that I, I know this is a complete yeah. out of left field kind of thing I'm throwing in, into this. Well, well, I don't think it is in, in this sense that, I mean, I think what we're talking about is a distortion of, and I think you're right to say there's a lot of stealing from Christianity in this vision, but there's this distorting of it. 
Um, what, what Rome wouldn't have given, okay, they had their notions of justice and, and virtues and those kind of things, um, but ordered usually around strength and, and, and character and ability, and, and you, you could unpack that more. Um, but violence was, was not, I mean, carried out the right way and in the right, to, to the, could be a completely just mean, you know, instrument um, in much wider ways than it would be for Christians. Um, but what you have in, in you know, these cases, you, yes, you have the sense that, I mean, what, what, is, what is true in this, in, even in the distorted sense about what, what is being said in these visions of, of woke, for example? Well, yes, it is true that the marginalized, and it doesn't matter which marginalized, but everyone has been made in the image of God, responsible to God, but also, but also fallen, but also has, has um, the, the hope that, that the gospel um, be heard for it. Um, but in that, what they've done is said, because, because these marginalized have not had the same <clears throat> blessings, um, therefore, um, to make up for that, we need to kind of almost reverse the, the situation. So those that did thrive under, under the, the former hierarchy, if you will, it needs to be kind of ordered the other way to where, you know, Apple has just come out with this new hiring program to which basically said, for example, um, white people need not apply, right. you know? Um, so in order to make these people feel like they are somehow being treated with the full dignity of what it means to be a human, you have to therefore dehumanize um, another group of people because somehow symbolically they are represented by everything that kept the other group by. I, I'm not even going there yeah. really. <laughs> I, what I have in mind is things that work. So for example, yeah. um, I want a military that's actually physically capable of winning. Yeah. You know, that would be, that's important. Um, <laughs> and physically capable of surviving on the battlefield and keeping each other alive on the battlefield. Yeah, that, all of that included. And physically strong men of a certain age with the right training are able to do that better, let's just say it plainly, directly, uh, better to, able to do that. We've got loads of data to, 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 to substantiate this than women of the same age and health. That's why we send men into combat and not women. Now, if we want to lose, we can say, okay, we're going to even this all out. You know, for thousands of years, men have been doing this. Now we're going to do, we're going to do the opposite. We're going to send women into combat for thousands of years. Now, what's that going to do? Obviously, that means that many women in their childbearing years, when they're most fertile and capable of raising healthy children, are going to be preoccupied with fighting, and they're going to be losing. I mean, if we're talking about actual physical combat on the field, not pushing buttons and guiding drones from some bunker in Arizona half, and sending bombs halfway across the world, if, if, if we're actually talking about actually occupying enemy territory and fighting hand-to-hand, -hand, well, we need a certain kind of guy. And... Uh, that, that means that certain other kinds of men, so for example, let's think about John Wayne. John Wayne did not go to war because physically he was not up to it, even though he played men in films who were. Someone who was up for it was Jimmy Stewart, you know, and he fought and uh, he was, you know, a, a bomber pilot, flew 25, 
you know, missions over Nazi Germany. And uh, he paid for it in terms of, you know, this, the psychological impact that, that, you know, that he felt because of that. But that's just one example. I'm using that as an example of hopefully, you know, and this is one of the things, too, about all this. So many people uh, are out of touch with physical reality that even something as commonsensical as the, as the statement I just made is lost on them because they've never tried to climb a rope. They've never actually been beaten up in the playground. They've, <laughs> they've never actually done anything physical in their lives. They really believe everything that they see on some computer game that, that they play. They think that's reality. That's, that's reality. So they're out of touch with history. They're out of touch with physical reality. They're living in this sort of fantasy world of equality. And they're not dealing with these just simple realities. I just want things to work. So let's say Apple does what it, you know, follows yeah. through on what I think it's all a, a show. I think it's a bunch of BS. Yeah, I think I they're going to be hiring people behind the lo- behind the scenes yeah. who can actually do the work. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, and I think my my point is is just that the way in which you you have contra the Christian vision when we make these alterations, it isn't about. Um, respecting the image of God in people, it's it's really about a way about reordering social hierarchies. Um, but what it does is not one that breeds the kind of harmony that the gospel does. Recognizing that that there, you know, the rain falls on the good and the bad, a, but also God blesses some and others, no matter what the situation. You're not supposed to covet what they have. You're actually supposed to. Um, truthfully enact the gift that you've been given towards the ends towards which you've given it and you will find life. <laughs> it doesn't matter who you are, what you are, what situation you're in. So I don't need to be jealous of you know, your ability to draw and therefore need to put you in, a, in, a, in a, you know, a cellar so that I can kind of learn how to draw in some way so that I can somehow feel better about myself in order for justice to be achieved. It's a perverse set of justice. It's zero sum, as, as Glenn has said. Someone else has to decrease in, for, in order someone else to, to flourish. But what, uh, mm-hmm. What's worth noting here is that when you actually take a look at what critical theory is saying, it rejects both the individual and the universal. Yeah. What it says is that you are a product of the, well, taking, extending the term intersectionality a bit further than, than it's usually used for, you are, the only thing that's significant about you is that you are the intersection of a whole bunch of other groups. Yeah. You know, you are, you know, you are your race, you are your gender, you are your sexual orientation, you are your gender identity, yeah. you are your fill in all of these other things. And all you are is a representative of all of those groups, and where they all come together, that's you. You are not an individual, and there is no such thing as universal humanity. There are, there's only this kind of group identity. Yeah, yeah. And that is the antithesis of what the gospel is telling us. That's what the gospel tells us is that there is a universal humanity made in the image of God. That's, that's it. Right. That's the definition. But there's also an individual response that you make to God. That's right. And all of these groups that exist within society disappear in Christ. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, what's going on with the whole woke thing is literally the inversion of the gospel. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And also, and then it becomes those things like you're mentioning, Chris, they become not oriented towards life, for example. 
having a good military and a strong military as as it's come to to be understood at least in in, in, in certain Western cultures that have been influenced by Christianity is towards life. It's towards protecting life, defending life. It isn't about just asserting one's will on the world. There have been episodes of that and, and crit- critiqued by Christians right rightly. Um, but, but, and, and similarly, um, you know, uh, childbearing and, and the protection of certain ages and times and, and, and woman's life is also about life. Um, and the cultural life. So where that becomes less and less significant, therefore that gets erased, therefore it gets blurred, therefore it doesn't. And so that, that's kind of one of the things that um, Weicker starts in the book. He says, what accounts for the historical uh, return of this kind of dark contrast in the West um, that after so many centuries of Christian culture? And he said sort of the, the answer is this rise of new images of humanity maybe new kinds of paganism, I mean, he uses that kind of uh, loosely, um, with their own particular architects um, who self-consciously built a new culture within the Christianized um, world, which sought to both destroy and displace. Those who built, according to this image, are the architects of what he'll, he'll call the, the culture of death. And he has his whole list, list of them. But one of the things he, he wants to get at is... Um, these architects reject the central uh, image of Christianity and replace it with a new image, one in which humanity is the unintended result of blind natural forces, not the uh, creation of God in his own image, and one in which human beings are purely material creatures cast into an existence by an indifferent nature and forced to define themselves and their own kind of liberation. Um, So the new doctrine of salvation is multifaceted. Um, salvation by the expression of naked instinct, by sexual self-indulgence, by bloody proletarian revolution, you know, by social justice, by raw acts of the will, by population control, contraception, scientism, eugenics, any one of these things. But these become, you know, the, the, the variations that this culture um, opens up. But one of the things I think that um, was there with what Glenn was saying is, and what he wants to highlight, is what gets eradicated in the, the underlying metaphysic in this new vision is any true sense of the personal. Um, the personal, and I don't mean the kind of extreme personalism that makes a, that God into a great grand therapeutic personality in the heavens. I'm talking about the personal in, in the terms of being made in the image of God for the communicative, the intelligible, for true being purposes and ends. Um, being able to discern those ends and orient oneself and desire those things. Um, so being made in, in that way. This is what gets eradicated. And so as the personal becomes, as these, these cult, this culture of death arises, what is seen as liberating humanity to, to kind of indulge their humanness is basically to indulge those aspects about the human that, that uh, are read in very um, non-personal ways, like, in, you know, um, sexual indulgence, right? It breaks down the personal relationship that is made between the, 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 you know, the husband and wife and the children and the social context and the larger created order. And it becomes nothing more than gratifying the particular needs of a pretty much impersonal, um, you know, ape, <laughs> if, if you will. Um, and so it's also easy to therefore dehumanize, um, the, you know, human beings in the, attain, in the attempt to attain some kind of 
social ideal or life ideal. And so it's easy to write off the, the, the human being when that you rid them of their personal natures um, when they get a certain age. Oh, they're just a particular animal at a particular age who's ready to die and probably craving death, so we're just going to help them along and push them over the cliff kind of thing. Um, so, so his point is, you know, why that turn? Um, what figures went into making that turn? And then how are we addressing that particular turn today? I mean, we're seeing it all over the place, I think. Um, and so maybe I'll just stop there and let you kind of share anything that's coming to mind. Yeah, I think the thing that I try to do with some of the things I've written is reacquaint people with the physical constraints and the necessities, uh, just the practical necessities that people had to live with in the past. So um, many of those things are obscured for us today. We're, they're, they're, they're buffered. Mm -hmm. We don't feel them. Um, in the past, just, an ex just as an example, in the past, when you didn't have Social Security and you didn't have in the administrative state and the vast bureaucracy of the federal government, uh, it was just basically kind of you against the world. Hmm. You know, remember that song, You and Me Against the World? Like, who, who sang that? Diana Ross or something like that? <laughs> just you and me against the world. <laughs> and she's singing to, if I remember correctly, she's singing to her child. Oh, really? And... Um, these days, it would be singing to your cat. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, that actually gets to my point. Okay, yep. <laughs> in, in those days, you yeah. would be uh, you would rely upon your child uh, as your child relies upon you uh, when the child is a child. Someday, you'll rely upon your child yeah. when you're elderly. Yeah. That was it. You know, uh, I've, I think I've mentioned this before. Years ago, when I was involved in urban ministry in Boston, I, I spent a lot of time with Haitian folks, and, and there was a Haitian man that told me one time that the oldest son in a Haitian family is known as the crutch. And I said, really? Why is that? He said, when you're old, you lean on them. Hmm. The social welfare system yeah. and the extended family, the family system, were one and the same. Today, we don't have that reality. In fact, we've, we've intruded, we've, we've put, we've... We've inserted the welfare state yeah. uh, into people's lives, and this has separated them from their own children in this practical way. And, yeah. you know, the, the thing that I'm really kind of in, uh, intrigued by with all of this is that in the name of trying to... Well, I think people would argue that they're, they're trying to get, uh, get, provide people with a better life. Mm -hmm. Um, and in order to provide people with a better life, you hide death. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And, it, and the concept of a better life is actually one that is vastly reduced, vastly stripped down, and that consists largely of slavery. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's right. And I mean, one of the things Weicker had written an earlier book, uh, I think, like uh, years before, called Moral Darwinism. And his uh, book was interesting because he was looking at Epicurus and the way in which you know the ancient philosopher was wanting to liberate the humanity from the gods, from the immortality of the soul, from any kind of transcendent reference point of meaning, and to bring it all down to earth. Because in his sense, he felt like that was actually the only way to achieve really life. 
And he thought of it, even though it end, ended up becoming, if you start to follow it through to its logical conclusions, death. For him, at least, he thought he was liberating things unto life, um, a, a truly, fully human, worldly, natural life. Um, and, and so this is one of the interesting things. is I, I, You often find this motive. I mean, you see it with Comte. You see it with Feuerbach. You see it with, with Marx. The, the aim is some humanistic way of achieving some kind of utopia life. And so you need to get the, the suffocating culture uh, sucking Christianity out of the way, if you will. Um, and I think this is something Chris, you brought up in the last, um, the last show. I don't, I, and I said to remind me of it. Um, I, I don't oh, remember. Oh, by the way, Tom. <laughs> I don't remember what you were saying, but I do know what I was going to reply. Um, one of the things you notice about the reactions of Christianity with Nietzsche, um, his teacher, uh, or the student of Nietzsche, I believe, uh, Overbeck, is it, it is true, and this is going to go the opposite direction of the last show that I did, is on the one hand, while Christianity does enter into cultures and transform, the opposite temptation can happen. It is that you can end up with something called cultural Christianity. And this is, well, there are benefits that Christianity brings. The, the culture also domesticates Christianity to, to almost suffocate it. And so Nietzsche and a lot of these other figures were kind of reacting to that, the bourgeois, the way yeah. in which Christianity based, it's, it's sort of like what I feel with evangelicalism, yeah. that it is suffocated and domesticated the gospel to well, the point like that its aesthetic vision is, is yeah. Right. Yeah, Kierkegaard was yep, you know, after, right. after the same kind of thing. He, was, yep. he felt the state church yep. uh, had domesticated Christianity and he wanted to reintroduce that wild element. That wild, that, that's right. And, and you see that, I mean, some of the figures that, that end up in this list of the culture of death, um, I think even with Weicker will say that they, they thought they were aiming towards life. He goes, but there is some sense in which they made a choice and they were aware that they were doing something rejecting the gospel consciously as well. Um, that's his, his conviction on that. I mean, he starts with Schopenhauer and I think it's a brilliant place uh, for him to start. Because have, have, you ever, have you ever done a reading in Schopenhauer? Oh, it's, he's hilarious. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, but one of the things that uh, 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 Schopenhauer, for those out there, um, who is a very influential on Wagner and Nietzsche. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but his whole, he wrote, what, what was his uh, famous uh, philosophy? Uh, the will is, the uh, will is representation or something like that. Uh, yeah, it, it was, you know, with, we, we think of will to power with Nietzsche. Uh, it's just basically will, raw will yeah, to Schopenhauer. And, and will, I mean, if, if, if you know, for the, for the Christian audience unfamiliar with uh, a Schopenhauer, one way of putting it is basically if you were able to get to Kant's thing in itself, which Kant never thought you could, but if you were trying to get to reality as it is in itself, um, for, uh, for, for um, Schopenhauer, it's basically reality under the fall that he thinks is all there is. Yeah. So he, he doesn't think, so, so um, reason can only lead you to, to nature, um, and when you see nature, if you peer behind it and get its most fundamental sense, it's this nasty, mean beast of a will. That's right. I mean, if you ever want to, like, uh, if you're having a good day and you think, like, you're too high and you want to, like, bring it down a little bit, I think read Schopenhauer's maxims. I think it's his maxims. And they'll bring you right down, right away. You know, he'll, he'll show you the dark cloud behind every silver lining in the world. It's, he's just that way. He's, he, was, he, was, uh, he was a real character, and uh, yeah. he, he, he intentionally, uh, he hated Hegel. Yeah. He hated Hegel. And he would intentionally 
uh, scheduled his lectures at the same time as Hegel, hoping to pull people away, and no one came to his lectures, and that just <laughs> made him even more bitter. <laughs> but uh, anyway, he, he, but he, he was a, a grumpy old man, and uh, you know how it is with grumpy old men. They say funny things sometimes. <laughs> you know, um, he sounds like the kind of guy that might have got on well with us. <laughs> we, we're, we're too lighthearted for him. <laughs> That's right. But his, yeah, so, but, but his, big, his big line was, um, uh, you know, I'm quoting Weicker here, is he, he opened the door that led from appearance to reality. He believed that he saw reality uncovered. It was something malignant and more disagreeable to the human mind. It was not congenial, divinely designed order, but will, raging, blind, naked, suffocating, godless will. And that's what the thing in itself, that is what reality is at its core. And of course, yes, you get Nietzsche with this, and then you get all of the, this notion of ill will behind any kind of exertion of power. Right. Well, his famous illustration is, uh, why do we feel the urge to grin when we hear that someone has died? Hmm. Think oh, about sorry. it. <laughs> I, I just did it. Sorry. I, I, I don't think it's an accident that Schadenfreude is a German word. <laughs> but, but you think about it. I mean, you know, it's it's a weird thing. Now, I would use that as an illustration of the fallenness of human nature. Yeah. What Schopenhauer does is he says, "No, that is human nature." That's just the way it well, is. Well, see, I think, and you hit it right there. I think what Schopenhauer is doing is making making nature in terms of its truest being be that of it under the conditions of the fall. Right, right. And because of that, he therefore sets forth. In, in, in one way, you could say that most of this culture of death and most of modernity that has followed this has this at its metaphysical and ontological, that means its being and reality base. And that's why I always tell my students is that we, we can't just criticize the ideas or show the worldviews inconsistent or not. We have to actually go for what's, what, what is at that root because everything else is, is an expression of it. And so we're, we're, we see it with the woke. I mean, this notion of, of you know, anything that a particular dominant group does is an exercise of their will. Well, for Schopenhauer, that would be good because all you're doing is conforming to reality. For Nietzsche, that would be good because you exerting your will on the world and not feeling guilty about the marginalized is actually the creative impulse of life. They criticize Christianity for caring about the marginalized and the, and the outcast. And, the, and, and so, um, but what Christianity does, it doesn't go in the, in the direction of merely caring about it in, an, in, in, a, um, in, in another power play, but it, ra it, it really radically redefines everything. Well, you know, um, this kind of brings up something that I've wondered about. Actually, Schopenhauer was really into Buddhist thought. Yeah, uh, and it's sort of the, the annihilation of the self, the, all of that. Yeah. Um, so he uh, he was appalled at the very thing that he knew was the case, and this uh, sort of inconsistency in his in his own sort of sort of outlook. That on the one hand, this is the way things are. On the other hand, I can't live with this. I need to sort of a, a, a kind of seek nirvana, seek nothingness. Yeah. Uh, I, I wonder if that isn't uh, part of this sort of chic Buddhism that we see. Yeah. You know, if you if you ever if you ever 
you, you don't have, you can't watch television for you know very long before you see somebody in a lotus position in some commercial. So, yeah. I don't know for United Airlines or I don't know uh, Infinity Cars or what what have you. And but the real problem with using that in an airline commercial is that if you follow through on it, you'll be able to levitate, so you won't need the airline. <laughs> but my, I guess my point is is that is that you when when the powers that be our betters in Silicon Valley and Hollywood and, and Madison Avenue, when they do their thing, when they say, oh, let's make a commercial, and in this commercial we want to, we want to somehow express, you know, sort of spiritual reality. You don't see anybody, you know, praying the rosary or, or <laughs> taking communion or anything like that. Yeah. You see someone in a lotus position, usually a skinny girl who's into yoga, and that's it. <laughs> Yeah, you know it's it, it, but but I wonder, and this is my this is my point. I wonder if that isn't appropriate, because we do live in a in a Schopenhauerian world. Hmm. I do think that the people in Hollywood and in Silicon Valley and in Madison Avenue do they're, they're empty. Yeah. yeah, they're empty. Yeah, you know, for for those of you who are of an age. And know a song called Dust in the Wind. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I always thought that that song was just sort of an expression of nihilism. Yeah. It turns out Kerry Livgren wrote that while he was a Buddhist. Really? He was Buddhist when he wrote that. So isn't he with Kansas? Wasn't that Kansas? Yep. Yeah, it was Kansas. Kerry yeah. Livgren was, yeah. the, was the one who wrote, and wrote that particular song for right. them. Right. Hmm. But it's an expression of Buddhist philosophy, dust in the wind, that's all we are. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the yeah. phrase comes from Native American stuff, but it, it, he yeah, was in a... Ken Boa actually co-wrote his autobiography with him, oh, wow. and wow. Uh, that's yeah. He said, "Yeah, Buddhist." Huh. Interesting. Did he? Did yeah, Kerry Lipgren is a Christian now. But now that's what I thought. That's yeah. What I thought. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. What about? But, but that points to this idea of the emptiness that you find even within Buddhism. We think it's this wonderful spiritual path that makes you feel nice. No, not no, if you actually no. understand it. Yeah, and that's the thing about New Agey people is they think reincarnation is like this wonderful thing, but within the framework of the East, it's like, oh, no, I have to live again. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what it is. It's a curse. It, it, yeah. The goal in, the, in Eastern thought is to escape yeah. To get out of the cycle of life and death, which is called liberation. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. That's, that's right. where, as you know, as you know, the, uh, the this generation of Nietzscheans would have seen that as sort of uh, bourgeois yoga. Um, well, that that's, they, that's, <laughs> what that's what it is. Yeah, you know, you're dealing with a with an intellectual lightweight. Yeah. You know, if you're like Shirley MacLaine and saying, "Oh boy, I need to live. I get to live again." Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that's yeah, right. You're just you are. You are yeah. dust in the wind intellectually, yeah. if you if you think that. And and when the the culture of death really is able to unleash as it's beginning to, um, you won't want to come back again. And you won't be able to escape. <laughs> yeah, but that but that's exactly the point is that yeah. is that they know that uh, that without God, uh, desire is ultimately frustrated. Yeah, and so desire is never satisfied by the infinite object yeah that yeah. Uh, so because of that desire is the thing that need that you need to be delivered from yep yeah yeah 
And so, um, oh, before that, because Glenn was talking Kansas, what about Carry On My Wayward Son? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting thing. When, when you listen to the album, which was called The Point of No Return, No is K-N-O-W, yeah. it's, got carry, it's got dust in the wind, but it ends with Carry On My Wayward Son because he, I think... He yeah. knew that there had to be an answer. Yeah, he yeah. didn't know what it was at that point, yeah. but he thought there had to be an answer. Yeah. Interesting. What a great song of Quest. That whole album really is. Yeah, yeah. Really. It's, it's still playing it. Still yeah. playing it. Yeah, yeah. On the older station, anyway. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, so uh, one of the things Weicker says, uh, Schopenhauer is one of the first to understand the full implications of atheism as if it were springing an evil genie from a bottle. Yeah. Unleash the notion and nature of a blind will into the modern world. Um, where it continues to play a significant role in philosophy, though, in a variety of incarnations. For Nietzsche, who read Schopenhauer avidly, it became the will perf- to power. For Freud, it lodges in the instinctive power of the libido. William Reich locates it at the irrational core of sexual desire. Um, Sartre finds it in everywhere and experiences it in the form of nausea. Um, Simone de Beauvoir um, is sickened by the way it suffocated women biologically and makes them an, its easy prey. Elizabeth Badinter seeks to escape from its oppressiveness by escaping into an absolutized ego. Schopenhauer is the father of a legacy of modern philosophy known as vitalistic irrationality. It's a legacy, Manichaean in its essence, that reacts with horror to the presence of nature, the irrational tool of a merciless will. So I thought that was worth kind of unpacking because we've noticed this kind of war on nature yeah, now. Yeah. And uh, maybe that, that, you know, that gives an insight into why, why bios and logos and natura, if you will, are in this conflict and war. I wonder, I wonder if the way back is not through, the, through ecology. Now, I know that we, you know, the Earth Firsters and some of the Gia people kind of freak us out. But, um, <laughs> you know, who is it? Uh, Paul Northfield, the, 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 English, uh, uh, the English novelist. Uh, I have to look this up just to make sure I've got the name right. But uh, he went on a, an intellectual journey and is now a Christian, but he had been an atheist. He had been kind of an earth firster, you know, uh, ecologist, uh, you know, an activist, kind of a Greenpeace sort of guy on steroids. And, uh, but he, he recognized uh, that what he was uh, engaged in or involved with uh, was a losing concern. Mm-hmm. And it drove him to think more deeply about metaphysics and about the nature of reality just to, he, he wanted to know why nature uh had such a hold on him and he wasn't able to to explain it uh just based on you know i like what i like yeah you know he, he had to go deeper than that um and he couldn't explain it just on utilitarian terms like yeah you know well you know if we don't if, if nature is isn't there for us we're going to die yeah, you know. So he said, "Well, that's not what I'm about. I mean, I, I'm after something deeper than that. There's something I'm I'm looking for that." So it took him into Buddhism. Yeah, huh. he came out of Buddhism. Yeah, um, and uh, now he's a Christian and really kind of a paleoconservative. He's kind of gone. Th- he's he's swallowed the the Christianity p- pill in full. 
Yeah. Well, it, well, it's interesting because Weicker wrote the book I'm just talking about, and he's written some others. And he is, he's a Catholic, but he, his le- most recent book is In Defense of Nature. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Catholic Unity, the Environmental, Economic, and Moral Ecology. And right. it's interesting that there is a turn there. I think they, they see that that was really where that shift took place for us, and that's may, maybe the, the place of reflection on the way back. A lot of people tried the aesthetic. I mean, that was their way into it, but I don't think... I mean, I think you see them trying to emphasize the aesthetic with the natural. I mean, isn't that what Hanby and some of these other, other thinkers are trying to do? Um, uh, what is the other guy's? A Schindler? Is that his? Right. Yeah. Um, and I think they're on to something there, but I do think you're right. I think the, the, this return to a, a, a metaphysics of creation and a theology of nature are fundamental to reasserting the full Christian vision um, that will address these kind of underlying assumptions that uh, most of these alternatives are working with. Um, and I think they, they need to be. I mean, look, look at the list of people here. Let's say that you don't agree with all of what Weicker's interpreting. You still have to agree with something close to it, right? These people have not embraced the, 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 the spiritual, theological, and metaphysical vision of Christianity. They've obviously grabbed hold of something else. They've grabbed hold of something else that needs to position itself over against Christianity, and the options are very limited. <laughs> and so they're going to fall into whatever those limited options, and they all start to look the same once you keep pushing them to a certain point. And I think that's what Weicker is on to. Um, you, you keep pushing it, and you get this, this, this basically this unpleasant will that is at the heart of all being and nature. And so we, in some sense, either are going to go along with it and we're going to become ubermensch or, or we're going to fight it in resistance, but we're not resisting it for Christian reasons. We're doing it for reasons in order to have some kind of sense of ourselves and identity over against it, and therefore we're in endless conflict with it. Um, and so, they, and so they don't—they don't have a way to both negate the the sin and, a, and and hold on to the goodness. That's what's missing there. So therefore, they're either going to negate everything or embrace everything as is. Yeah, I think that that that's really kind of the critical point, isn't it? That um, if all you are—and this goes back to some of the things we talked about last time—if if you reject anything beyond this world, all you're left with is obviously what's here. And then if you have a, an optimistic or a positive view of it, you end up as a positivist or something along those lines. But if you see the dark side of this world, and if that's what you find most dominant about the world, you're Schopenhauer or, yeah. or any of the people who follow him. It it's really comes down to uh, the acceptance of the idea that this world is all that there is. Yeah. And along with that, sort of the the deist idea, whatever is, is right. This is the way it is. This yeah. is the way it's supposed to be. you got to deal with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the what's missing is simultaneously a Christian doctrine of creation and a Christian doctrine of the fall. Yeah, yeah. And it, th- those are the antithesis or the, the antidote. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Uh, they're the antidote to this kind of thinking, it seems yeah. to me. And then redemption read that way rather than, than as, as a sort of way of addressing um, the and kind of ill will behind all things. 
um, because in that case, redemption gets read as, as, as literally a, a way of being pulled up and out of all of those things that limit and determine us of the creaturely, and it becomes almost a war against them, and sort of the only way to have something about us ends up becoming strangely, in the materialist context, Gnostic. Yeah. Now, one, one thing, I, I really want to go back to Schopenhauer for a moment. Um, one thing that I, I'm sort of missing here is, and, and I don't know him, I've never read him. Yeah. So um, his, uh, his idea of the will, Yeah. what is willing? What, what is, is performing this act of willing something? Well, he, he had uh, the idea that this was some kind of independent reality outside of the self, uh, it was sort of at uh, the heart of, of reality. Um, you know, what you have with Nietzsche is, you know, it, it, it finds its telos in power, the will to power. So, but for, for Schopenhauer, it doesn't get that far. It's just will is sort of this raw, irrational kind of yeah. sort of power that's at work in things. Take the voluntarist notion of deity that develops, starts to develop more and more in the West, rip out the, the rash, any rational component to it and just make it raw will, immanentize it into nature, and that's what he's up to. Okay. You know, um, the analogy Weicker puts is, um, uh, what does he say, uh, Frankenstein um, ripped from its scientific creator. So you just have this raw, irrational monster that is carrying out it. I mean, he, yeah, that was his way of putting it. Yeah. But um, that assumed there was someone to make it. I mean, for him, that's the source of everything. For Schopenhauer, is the source of everything. So right. the universe is essentially a toddler. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah well, that's right. Yeah, right, ba- right. basically. And then, so the tragic, of course, is, is actually a good thing, and that's why the tragedy, um, the Wagnerian, the old Wagner right, before right. his Parsifal and all of that. And Nietzsche loved Wagner because of his Schopenhauerian um, adherence, but of course, then when he, he does, <laughs> Nietzsche would never forgive or listen to Wagner again once he wrote Parsifal. Isn't it interesting Nietzsche had enough sense to listen to Parsifal and know there was a conversion taking place? Most yeah. people today, yeah. I don't even think have well, that he kind was, of Well, he was a sharp guy. He, he could pick up on things. Yeah, yeah and, and, and mm-hmm. yeah, by the way, I wanted to correct myself earlier. It was Paul Kingsnorth is the guy that I was thinking about. The guy that was the author of the writer who was a ecologist who became a Christian, Kingsnorth. So if you're out there looking uh, on your, on, you know, searching for books by this guy I referred to yeah. as Kingsnorth, Paul Kingsnorth. Anyway, yeah. I, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to make sure I got that right. And uh, who's it? Uh, uh, Brian McGee was a famous English uh, philosopher. He had that long series, a little bit of a goofy guy from my perspective. He had a long series on, I don't know if it was BBC, but he, they interviewed all the major philosophers, Frederick Copleston, um, John Searle, um, uh, Iris Murdoch, and he, he's a great, I mean, he, he actually, you could tell he likes listening to himself, but he has a lot to say, and I think he's a, he's a great writer, but he, he wrote a famous book on Schopenhauer. I think he did his dissertation. It, it's probably got the finest introduction to Western um, philosophy around Kant's time that I've ever read. He, he is a, a great, he also wrote a book, interestingly, called Confessions of a Philosopher. It's very illuminating because he was an atheist and it's illuminating how ch- shallow his view of theology was yeah. for somebody that astute in other ways. But yeah, anyway, yeah. Um, but uh, one of the things you get here with Schopenhauer is that not only is it an irrational will, but it, it is both the source of life but the, the, yeah. the kind of, but, but because life's telos is death, it is, it's fully 
fully tragic. This isn't a good, it's not a good in creation to be celebrated and festive and joyous. See, Nietzsche, I think, had a problem with that. The same problem he had with Christianity. So what, what Nietzsche wanted to do is kind of, no, wait a minute, I need, we need to make that raw power and even death something to be embraced rather, of course yeah. he returned, you know, the myth of re, re, eternal return. But Nietzsche's whole point is Christianity sucks the life out of things. Um, and yet will is behind everything, but what about developing a notion of will and celebration that really fosters life and the arts and creativity? And so that was, that was his dream, and I think in, in some ways, um, his might have been, you know. Well, I know, there's, when, I, when I hear that, you yeah. know, when I think about Nietzsche and his, his legacy, uh, particularly with his, his, his notions on slave morality and resentment, yeah, I can't help but want, I can't actually I, I can't help but actually see what he's talking about sometimes. Yeah, like I look around and I say, you know, I wonder how much, you know, this how much of this celebration of of weakness, and and meekness and and so forth isn't just envy. Yeah, you know, isn't just sort of resentment. At yeah. you're not on top. Uh, and that, that's really what, what Nietzsche was getting at when he, when he was, you know, described slave morality and the, the lionization of mercy and things like that. Now, I don't agree with that, but, yeah. but what I do think we need, and this gets back to the point I made earlier about, you know, intersectionality and so forth. What about the gift of strength? It is a gift, isn't it? It, it didn't come from the devil. Yeah, I mean, God is all powerful, right? Yeah. God created the world with the with the with with you know, He's spoken into being. God is omnipotent. I mean, uh, are we, are we trying to imply that you know, with with all of our stress on you know the dignity and the humanity of people who are weak or or ill or whatever, that it's not a good thing to to see? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In other words, being blind is better than being sighted. Yeah, uh, you know, it, what, it, and, and, and why is this? I mean, why, why are these things goods? Um, so I, I come across a lot of young men who feel guilty for one, being men, two, for being stronger than other people, three, for being smarter than some people, four, for actually being productive, five, for actually being able to accomplish things that other people can't do. They actually are, are made to feel guilty yeah. for this. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, you know, I always say very complicated um, socio-political issues are usually very simple on other levels. I mean, there's a world of difference between um, pursuing these things that obviously are goods and have benefits and then the, the way in which we can use those things to exploit or to serve. It's a fundamental difference. For example, you can, you can be a great um, craftsman, and you can not only do great craftsmanship and, and create beauty and, and utilize your gift and make a lot of money, say, for it, but also you can teach people how to do it as well. You have benefited X, Y. Or you could just be someone said, no, you know what, I'm just going to do this and I'm actually going to cut out all the competition, not let anyone get in the game. They make... They blur those two. Yeah, that's right. And so they say that if you have a lot of gift and this, that, and the other, or you've got to basically deny any benefit for yourself and let all these come up and get the benefit. And that, that, that's just, I mean, it's obviously not the, it's not A, it's not a rational uh, option um, and a wise one. But secondly, it, you don't have to fall into the either-or trap, mm -hmm. you know. Um, yes, 
again, I think what you see especially happen with today, the, the, the woke crowd and all that stifling of, of advantage, is literally, again, a affirmation that the world is, by nature, ill, irrational will. And, and it's all about dominance. And it doesn't have the capacity to have goodwill to help anyone else. So the other has to either have power or it's, it's exploited. And it, it works just in that range. Whereas a true Christian vision is a way to incorporate different gifts, different abilities, different blessings, different histories, different providential outcomes, and yet still be one body that mutually benefits without covetousness the whole. Um, you know, it's, you know, some people have a gift of teaching well, some people don't, you know. Some people have the ability to, to you know, helps, you know. I'm not someone who can pick up the phone and empathetically call people suffering. It's not because I don't <laughs> care, I just, I don't. I, I call you, up and I end up you, making you it worse. Tom, you don't want Tom to call <laughs> yeah, if sa- you're not feeling well. I sound like Schopenhauer when I call and I try to sound like a good Christian, you know. That's, and it, that's, right. Not, <laughs> that's right, when I call you I say things like, you know, there are a lot of people who feel worse <laughs> than right. you, so that's get right. over it. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. No, no, the, the, there, when, you, when we think about the range of gifts and sort of the non-compete sort of dimension of those those things, you know, I think that, like when I think about my wife, my wife generally genuinely has the gift of gift of helps. So she bugs me every day to make a sandwich for me. Think about that. <laughs> my wife obviously doesn't have the <laughs> no, you know what? My wife will ask me. Does know, she like listen a, to these shows? <laughs> I'm in trouble my, now. <laughs> my wife will ask me at like 11 o'clock, what do you want for lunch? Are you ready for lunch? I'm like, well, not yet. You know? <laughs> but, but, but she also has a, a marvelous gift of teaching yeah. piano to small children. Yeah. So she's got a list of people who want. Now, you think about it, That's the sweet spot of teaching piano. Because, yeah. you know, the worst place to be when you're a piano teacher is like a person who just only wants very highly talented people uh, who've already been taught for years and years. That's yeah. like you're, you're begging for students if you're that sort of person. Yeah. You've got no patience. But everybody <laughs> wants their kid to try piano. So if you're the sort of person who actually enjoys yeah. teaching the same thing, basic oh. stuff over, over and over. over again to little kids yeah. in kindergarten and first grade, it's a gold mine. She's got a list of people who want her to teach their kids because she's got those gifts. Yeah. But uh, there are other things that she can't do, uh, and there are things that I can do that that, and there are other things I can't do. I mean, this whole thing. That's how complement and and you but but you both benefit from each other's gifts. I mean, right. it's similar. Yeah. My wife's a therapist and. She is able to talk to people and, and be empathetic. Ways into where, you know, where I sound like Schopenhauer. Matter of fact, she has the gift of, of like letting me know when I shouldn't say something, you know? Um, well, but why don't you leave? It's interesting. But, yeah, that's right. That's right. This is the point at which you can shut up. Yeah. But, but isn't, isn't there something you, for you to do in that other room? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Can you get me this right now? I've got a friend who says frequently, Never miss an opportunity not to say anything. <laughs> that's right. I, I've never regretted keeping my mouth shut. That's, well, that's true. And, and it's interesting, and this is a little aside, but it's, it's something like uh, Chris was talking about, especially in relation to his wife, is a lot of times you think, people wrongly think, that 
okay, there, there, there's no outcome in all that. Okay, these, you know, the little kid's going to learn. They're not going to be interested. It's simply not true. Um, we had a, a kid growing up, uh, he had neighbor family. His dad worked on cars, was a welder. Uh, great, I mean, very talented. Took restored old cars, loved cars, but hated fishing. I hated fishing. No fishing. Well, my dad didn't work on cars. He, heating, air conditioning, he's in the military, but he loved to fish. His dad taught him to fish. That's how they spent their time together. So when I, we were kind of teenagers, my dad would take us out on a boat. Well, anyway, this kid was a bit younger than us, a couple, like four years, five years younger. So we'd take him fishing. He always wanted to learn fishing. And the whole time, all we're doing is getting his pole unstuck. And I mean, he, it was just, it was torture for the rest of us. <laughs> he couldn't throw a line. I mean, we just, hopeless. Well, anyway, turns out years later, he's one of the leading uh, fish guides on the James River in Virginia. And he has <laughs> catches citation after citation. So it's strange when Championship you, you, you end up investing in ways in people that you don't. You, t- you take what gifts and likes and desires you have and you you are producing some of someone who doesn't come from the back or doesn't have the privilege of a fishing family but a family who someone had enough gift to teach him the basics ends up becoming something that he flourishes with. Yeah, yeah, and we don't make that guy feel guilty. That's right. For succeeding. That's right. You celebrate it. We celebrate it. We th- we're glad for him. We we uh, praise him. You know, this is what the uh, the woke crowd apparently, uh, at least as far as I can see, uh, doesn't don't know how to talk about. Anyway, we we should probably start wrapping things up here. We're getting to that time. Anything you want to say, Glenn, as we wrap up? No, I think uh, I'm done. Okay. <laughs> Anything else there, Tom? Uh, there's lots to go with in, in future times, but I think the, the, the contrast um, between a culture of life and flourishing and complement um, versus conflict, um, zero-sum game, and ultimately the suffocation of life um, are our choices we are facing now as ever, and, uh, and we, we should be uh, willing to go with what gives true life and be willing to engage the uh, life-suffocating vision of alternatives. Yeah, and, and, and as I wrap up, um, as I think about it, um, I think one of these days I'm going to bring Schopenhauer's maxims just to have some fun. Because it would be good. He, he was a witty guy, was a really, really uh, sort of curmudgeonly guy, and uh, was a guy that uh, even though you say, you know what, it must have been miserable to be that guy, He's the sort of guy you can laugh at. Did, doesn't he have a doesn't he have a counter logic book? Doesn't he have one where he basically has a book that negates all logical fallacies? I, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I think I'll he does. I'll, I'll I see if I can I find it. I think one. I have it actually. Yeah, yeah I'll have to okay. see. But well, yeah, I, because the the world is basically irrational, so he creates a whole list of irrational rationalities. Okay, well, <laughs> yeah. I'll have to look that up. <laughs> yeah, I, they're I was, all around. <laughs> I was introduced to Schopenhauer about the same time I was inter- introduced to Montaigne and uh, and La, La Rochefoucauld and. and Gratian and all those guys. Anyway, uh, fun stuff. Well, we're glad that you listened yet again all the way to the end of the Theology Podcast. <laughs> and uh, we're glad to have you uh, as uh, one of our listeners. And we hope you'll listen again. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye now.